And welcome back after lunch. Um, so just to kind of orient where we are and where we're going a little bit. Um, so the sessions before lunch were really sort of established to kind of, again, bring us to um, some level of uh, community sharing and a sense of um, nourishment and how it is that we can kind of take refuge in uh, a larger awareness of self um, through, you know, whatever words we choose to describe that. And I personally struggle quite a bit with our language around nature and wilderness and environment. And that's something that, um, you know, we can discuss more as a group. Um, but, you know, for, for lack of better terminology right now, I'm just acknowledging that we are a part of something so much larger than just a human, human society. And, um, and the implications of that and the responsibility around that. Um, and also a big part of, you know, w when we're considering Buddhist environmental chaplaincy is this, how is it that we process this particular historical moment? How is it that we are with um, all of the suffering in the world, all of the more than human suffering? How are we connected to that? Um, what are the tools we have for opening to that and working with that? And um, and also cutting through the delusion in terms of what what is what is this moment and what is um, at stake here and what has been the histories um, the multiple histories that have created helped co-create um, the violence and suffering that we're seeing today and experiencing collectively today. Um, so this third session is really going to look more closely. At, um, at that and, and uh, look at how it is that we can reconcile where we are today with um, the histories and with all of the um, difficulties that we face in this current moment. So um, the people who are helping us with that are really um, fortunate. Uh, we have Bronte, who is um, a multimedia artist, educator, and designer. And she... Um, does quite a bit of work to look at how to kind of deconstruct violences that are uh, precipitated by environmental racism. And she is um, being joined by Kyle, and um, I'm sorry I don't have your last name, Kyle Lamy and Bronte um, Veles, Veles, sorry. See, there you go. Th thanks. <laughs> and Kyle has been, um, has done quite a bit of uh, natural or natural resource management work and um, all over the world, Himalayas, Southeast Asia, California, worked quite a bit with forest communities. And um, both of them have done some really creative initiatives um, with respect to environmental justice. Uh, and so I think you'll both be sharing some of that, so I won't get into it. But without further ado, thank you.
Another. Do you want to do this one and I'll do that one? Yeah. Yeah. I have a pocket. There's two of them. Oh, oh it's on. Can you? Is this better? Yeah. Am I in? Oh wow. Okay. Feels so fancy. <laughs> okay. Now I can, I can communicate to you all from outer space. Oh, my bad. Thank you. Thank you for the mountains, the soil, the trees, the fire, the water, the air. May we honor these elements as the ingredients of our alchemy. May we be in right relationship to these gifts. May we celebrate your abundance, never take more than we need, and give ourselves back to you as a gift. We remember the ancestors of this land, the Ohlone people. And we ask for your permission and the lands before all else to carry out our work in peace, for peace. May humility step first so as to let grace walk us down the path. May we decompose violence in ourselves before we ask it of the world. May we learn from the mushrooms what it means to carry death into new life. May we remember freedom is a practice not a destination, one that we must practice every day. May we always be imaginative in the face of violence. May we be willing to reimagine what it means to be secure. May we liberate the sacred trapped inside of all weapons. Remembering that the gun has a source, may we too surrender to source. May we be diligent and discerning in our work unending until our land, community, and minds are liberated from the talons of greed, hate, and delusion. And still, may we decolonize our sense of urgency, of productivity, of right and wrong, and call in the muse that knows this will take time, that knows we cannot solve a problem with the same mind that made it, that knows beauty is not an arrival but the way. Listening to our dreams, we remember another way is always possible. <clears throat> Welcome, everybody. Um, we were asked to speak about reconciliation. 
Um, and uh, yeah. And it's a, it's a hard one. It's a hard, it's a hard topic. It's a very juicy and um, sensitive topic. Um, so I hope that, um, so that we can proceed into the juiciness and strangeness and discomfort, we can just set some community agreements for this little hour and a half we have together. Um, the first agreement um, that I hope we can agree to uh, is the, to sit with discomfort and that we can all just notice um, discomfort arising and maybe also passing away if, it, if and when it comes um, and that we, we choose not to react um, immediately in our discomfort but just to notice. Can we agree to that? Mm, thank, you. Um, thank you. A second agreement is just so that we can Commit to living in question. Um, this is something I've really taken away in my Buddhist practices. I actually don't know very many answers at all. Um, and that question, and so, and a lot of the topics that we'll, we'll talk about, I think we'll bring forward more questions than answers. So can we, can we agree to, to living in question and unresolved answers? Yay. <laughs> and I guess the third would be... Um, yeah, patience, which is along with that. Patience, knowing that this will take time. That the issues that we're going to be uh, bringing forward today um, have been here for a long time, and they're probably going to be here for a while also. So this, this hour, we're not going to solve anything. So can we agree to be patient together? Thank you. The Ghost World Chair is a practice that comes through a person named Miyakota Taylor, who's of both African, indigenous, and European ancestry, and has an organization called Fierce Allies, based in the Bay Area, that um, trains around, trains communities of practice to uh, do the work of equity, reparations, um, and um, deep reconciliation and what that really requires. Um, and one of the practices that they um, introduce is called the ghost rule chair, um, where when discomfort might, may arise or when you perhaps want to sit with the embodiment of uh, the perspective of someone who is not in the room that may be affected um, by the work we're bringing up, we can just designate this space, this chair next to Kyle, as the ghost world chair, and you're invited to come in that signal and sit here and presence, um, channel someone who you, um, even another being that's not in the anthro, not, in, not a human. You can come and be just sitting, what about the tr- what would the trees feel about this? Or what does the soil feel about what we're talking about um, who are the indigenous people of this land who maybe um, also are affected, but when we speak to land and reconciliation with as settlers in this space, so you're welcome to come here um, with us. So <clears throat> just a little bit about us. Um, I'll start with spiritual ecology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Bronte and I met in this wonderful program called the Spiritual Ecology Fellowship. Uh, so we've been studying kind of movement chaplaincy and ecology chaplaincy um, 
together. We actually didn't use the word chaplaincy, but I love it. And I mm-hmm. think it's, it's so important um, as, a, as a role in society. Um, so this is a, a program uh, that we were, that we were part of the inaugural fellowship of 10 folks from around the country just coming together at the intersections of spirituality and ecology. So we had um, indigenous people, we had Buddhists, we had folks of Christian background, folks who were more agnostic but really interested in spirituality. And um, we were, uh, I think Bronte and I really deepened in our exploration of Buddhist ecology. And uh, the second retreat of our fellowship together, we were invited to... Uh, the Himalayas uh, to give a um, help lead, co-lead of an environmental workshop with this nunnery, um, this uh, Tibetan nunnery under the tutelage of His Holiness the Karmapa, who's kind of a, a contemporary in, of the Dalai Lama in the parallel. Um, one of the, he's the leader of one of the four major branches of Tibetan Buddhism. So we worked with the nuns and together um, we kind of brought our activism and our um, our science, (laughs) and they brought their practice and their morality. Um, And so they taught us a lot about actually basing our activism within ethics, um, spiritual ethics, Buddhist ethics, and we, you know, helped offer some tools about how they can apply those ethics in action. Uh, And just then more about my personal background. Um, I've studied a lot of different forms of Buddhism. Um, My home is in the Soto Zen tradition. I also... Uh, lived at Green Gulch Farm, uh, and uh, like Gil, I think, mentioned earlier, and uh, that was an important training ground for me. Um, I, yeah, I could tell you more about my Buddhist history and credentials, or <laughs> the, the disappearance of any sense of meaning as uh, the more I practice. I love that. The first, who said that earlier, the first step was, was finding meaning, and the second, the more advanced practice is finding meaninglessness. So beautiful. Um, and then just in terms of my environmental work, um, which at first was quite separate and only now is kind of coming together for me. Um, I studied environmental studies and international development. I, I worked in the Himalayas and in Bhutan and uh, Southeast Asia on community forestry and community-based forest management. So helping and working with indigenous communities to fight for rights to ancestral home, uh, forest lands. Um, and uh, then I just, you know, further continue my uh, romance with trees uh, here in San Francisco, working for Friends of the Urban Forest. Um, somebody mentioned Canopy earlier, and we were, were like the contemporary, or the, the parallel universe in San Francisco, planting street trees and schoolyard trees, and um, we planted like 50,000 trees in the city, so about half of the street trees that you see in San Francisco were planted by community members and volunteers. Um, and... Uh, that's enough about me. <laughs> wow. Um, I, <clears throat> my contemplative practice, um, I, I heard from Kyle recently a quote about how Buddhism can teach Christians how to be better Christians. Um, and I was raised in the in Baptist Christian faith and um, parents were past our pastors um and it was when starting to learn about colonialism and the intersections of christianity um really felt it was a violent faith for me um 
that I wanted, that I've still been decomposing and finding also beauty through, via Buddhism <laughs> about the ways Christianity is really beautiful and has been distorted. Um, and thinking of someone named Kevin Kwashi who has a book called The Sovereignty of Quiet. Um, and the subtitle of that book is Beyond Resistance in Black Culture. And he talks about how blackness is often understood as the opposite of whiteness or the, uh, something against, in, in opposition to or antithesis of whiteness. And he offers that blackness also has its own interiority that lives beyond whiteness. Um, and the constructs and legacies of colonialism imposed on racial formations. So I'm deepening into that, too, about what it might mean to be black, like blackness as absorbing light. And this is something, at the color, and it's something that comes into my contemplative practice about what it might, how to love, how to love something that was projected onto uh, my body. Um, and uh, I love the earth. I love the mushrooms. I'm really learning in my, um, uh, <laughs> I love them. Um, and I'm learning from them how to be humble in dying and to practice uh, death and to integrate that into my art practice and how I can, how these unnatural systems of oppression via capitalism, colonialism, white supremacy are designed without death cycles. Um, and so how do we instigate uh, ways for death to, be, to happen in these spaces and to love and be uh, grateful to die? And to a uh, woman shared earlier about transitioning um, people out of their bodies. And I'm interested in how we support people in the grieving process of transitioning out of white supremacy, out of violence, out of colonialism, out of capital. Um, yeah, and that brings us to Led to Life, um, which we receive, thank you, <laughs> um, which is, comes through, um, sorry. I got you. Thanks, this is hilarious. Um, it's really intense. There we go. Okay. Um, our <laughs> these big earrings. Maybe this is better. Okay, thanks. Um, our um, so I had a I had a friend who um, and it and it I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, um, and I had a friend <clears throat> who was um, killed in Atlanta at 21, a black um, young man, Xavier Arnold, who was killed by a 14-year-old young black man. Um, he was shot and killed um, on a bike path in Atlanta. <clears throat> and that child who killed him has, um, is now in prison, um, adult prison, is 17 now, and um, has been char char was charged with three life sentences um, and an additional 15 years along with a person that was with him who is 22 and now 25. Um, and Xavier's mother shared that she felt no justice um, from the young boys going to prison. Um, 
And I felt a similar grief running through me about confusion about the ways white children um, and white terrorists are afforded humanity. We ask questions about why the Las Vegas shooter did what he did. What is the psychology around how he could do this? What happened to him? And he's given, he's afforded spirit. We believe that he's a sentient being, that something must have occurred for him to do what he did. And black people and black children are not afforded that same capacity. They are demonized and they are turned into adults and monsters. Um, and so there's someone that we're interested in who, Dr. Sean Jinwright, who talks about moving out of post-traumatic stress disorder and into something called that some, for some folks, there's something called persistent traumatic stress environments, environments that are constantly impacted by trauma. And often, the same places where the earth has been harmed, um, extracted, destroyed, desecrated, are often sites where marginalized people also live. And they are equally affected and abused in the same ways. Um, so this leads us through our art practice and our um, environmental connection to bridge social and environment, rebridge and reconnect the social and the environmental um, as one thing that we are the earth as well. Um, as it was mentioned earlier, the earth conscious of itself, of, of themselves. Um, and so led to life is a practice that came through us with spiritual ecology and we are transforming weapons into shovels. Um, and we are holding ceremony at sites of violence between Atlanta and Oakland to plant sacred groves um, with victims of um, gun violence. Um, and our first ceremony is happening in Atlanta at the end of March, April, in tandem with the King Center, um, where next year is the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Um, so it's a really deep time to bridge Dr. King's work around interrelatedness that we'll get into, um, and liberating vessels of violence into reimagination. And so this is our work around reconciliation and what that means, and we're really asking those questions, what it means to reconcile, do practices of reconciliation with each other and with the earth simultaneously, that this is the medicine we need at this time. So I think I'm still plugged in. Okay. Oh, my. Um, yeah, and just really quickly before we move on, um, you, got, you all know about restorative justice? Yeah. Um, so we're, we're, we're leaning into the question of how can we integrate restoration ecology as a restorative justice practice? So that's a reconciliation. It can be, it can be dual. It can happen simultaneously and immediately. And uh, so that's, prob that's the end of our um, dis discussion of, led of our project, but we'd love to talk to you more afterwards or in the future about how we can all do this to work together. We've met so many alchemists, and it's really deep. So for the rest of our time, um, we're going to explore some questions together. Um, uh, the f so we're, we've broken down our presentation into three main sections. Um, so we were asked to discuss reconciliation, but you can't really undergo a process of reconciliation without first knowing the truth of what needs to be reconciled. Um, and then after the reconciliation process, how are we going to prevent future harm from being caused? 
again and again. So the, so the key question that we're going to sit with first is around, uh, and it's three R's, the three R's of reconciliation, where the second R is also reconciliation. <laughs> okay, the first R is radical dharma and truth-seeking. How do we center the freedom of the most marginalized for the liberation of all sentient beings? What is the battle that we are stepping into? Reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Um, what does reconciliation mean without reparations, without recognition for harms instigated? Can we reconcile anything without doing that latter? And we'll bring, come back in with more of Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams' work, who says truth is necessary for reconciliation. And then moving on to the third is responsibility. Um, what is the Sangha's work to do? Beth was mentioning earlier, what is my work to do? So what is, what is it that is ours to do as a Sangha? And how do we rise off the cushion uh, to save all beings in a world of intersectional violences? A lot. Excited? <laughs> We're going to get going. We're going a lot, in. A lot. Starting with radical dharma. And, uh, oh, but before we move on, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. More keeps coming up. Okay. Uh, so I wonder... Not to, not to jump ahead or anything, but I, as I was sitting there earlier, I was just kind of putting some pieces together. Someone mentioned, like, maybe it was Gil, that, that a chaplain as a guide. Um, and then I was thinking about our friend who's um, in hospice and thinking of the word death doula. and so, Some definition that's floating around in my head for maybe en- environmental chaplaincy. Um, what if, like the chaplain is a guide or a doula for co-liberation. Uh, and so we've heard that we know the word collaboration. We use it a lot. Um, and I think that co-liberation um, is, a, is actually, it seems like a very Buddhist word. Um, that we, and it's a, again, and I'll come back to this later, but, oh, I'll come back to this now, is uh, <laughs> that... For me, co-liberation is very in line with the bodhisattva vow, um, which, and the bodhisattvas forego nirvana, entrance to nirvana, until all beings are, are enlightened and all beings are free from suffering. And so that means that there, for, bo- for bodhisattvas and anyone, any Mahayana Buddhist on that path, there really is no liberation without co-liberation because we can never be, we're never free until everyone is free. Um, so I love that um, invitation for our chaplaincy uh, to, to guide that co-liberation process. Um, I also want to say, um, before we dive into this, or maybe you can move the next slide, um, that as we dive into, it should be number one, radical dharma and truth-seeking, uh, is... Uh, in leaning into truth and in leaning into suffering, I remember during my time at Green Gulch in 2012, we would have this whole language of talking about like over the hill, uh, where like the city was, where like the people were. Um, we were, you know, in our little valley, the, the Green Dragon Valley, and we were practicing. And <laughs> and at first, I was really pissed, like at that language of like separating it. And then over time, as I got deeper in my practice, I got a lot more sensitive. And then I actually resonated and was like, oh, over the hill, like 
oh gosh, like the suffering, I like literally can't with that misery. Like the internal misery is so profound that that's way too much misery. I cannot even begin. Um, and then kindly went, finally when I was leaving Green Gulch, I like had to face it. And, and so I think, I, I wonder as chaplains, like I think chaplains are really the, the, those practitioners that are over the hill, um, that are really not, you know, have emerged from their solo wilderness journey that uh, we were discussing earlier, um, and that, that, that came back from that, and we're integrating those lessons. It, and sitting with truths, both the Dharma, like the inner truth, and the truth of suffering that's actually happening. So let's talk about the truth of suffering that's actually happening. Wow. <clears throat> This is back to this key question. Um, so I'm going to share something from um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who has an incredible book called um, Radical Dharma um, that I haven't read. <laughs> but it's all, we were just talking about it on our reading list. But I've read a lot of other um, of their texts, um, articles, and I'm moved by their practice. They're a black Buddhist. Um, oh, great. There it is. Um, yeah, can someone read that for us? Yay, thank you. What is required? You're good. What is required is, the new, is a new dharma, a radical dharma that deconstructs rather than amplifies the system of suffering, that starves rather than fertilizes the soil that deep roots of societal suffering grows in. A new dharma is one that not only insists we investigate the unsatisfactoriness of our own minds, but also prepares us for the discomfort of confronting the obscurations of the society we are individual expressions of. It recognizes that the delusions of systemic oppression are not solely the domain of the individual. By design, they are seated within and reinforced by society. Someone else read this, this one from uh, Sufi teacher Llewellyn Von Lee, who also um, edited the, the anthology Spiritual Ecology that I recommend. Our collective forgetfulness of the sacred in creation is beginning to have an effect as irreversible and catastrophic as climate change. In fact, one could say that this outer physical predicament is the reflection of an inner catastrophe, a catastrophe that is even more disastrous because we remain unaware of it. Such beautiful voices. Um, and maybe just... Um this, this, I, I think this is the title of a Thich Nhat Hanh book, Start Where You Are. Um, and so I just want to speak for a second about beginner's mind. And, um, and I think that all of us are, are beginners in, in our own way <laughs> coming into this discussion. Um, and I also think it's important for us to, um, when we start our practice, it doesn't necessarily mean that we get a clean slate, that we have a clean slate when we start. Um, it's important, at least for m- in my practice. Um, I think when I first started practice, it was kind of naive, and I uh, just said, okay, like, 
I get to start fresh and uh, start liberating, just start cleaning my, myself. And, um, but actually, I think now I'm leaning into the, to the realization that starting where I am and beginner's mind includes histories of oppression, includes histories that I carry with me in my ancestry, um, and it also includes histories that are, um, that are also not mine, but that I'm complicit within and a part of. Um, so it's just something on beginner's mind that I'm, I'm grappling with. I can write. Okay. So we just wanted to harvest from the room about um, what is the context. Oh, sorry. Eek. Um, what is the context in which we're practicing? And in each of our contemplative practices, what are the truths about the world that we're uncovering through our practice of Dharma? Um, and when we lean into the truth, what is the, what is the contemporary context of the, of the world that we're in? What are the things that are affecting us um, all of the time? Do you want to speak to anything? No. We, do we know what dukkha is? Cool. So we, inv- we invite the harvest from the room. What's, what's going on right now that ne- maybe will need reconciliation later? Or immediately. Maybe we just pass the mic around. I keep feeling like I need to jump up and sit in that ghost chair. <laughs> um, my context is in the betwixt and between, resting in this threshold with this inner turbulence that it does not feel restful. I spend part of my time in an ecological preserve in a marshland where the tidal flow comes under my house. And from my porch, I can see San Quentin State Penitentiary and multi, 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 like $60 million, $60 million homes with my view standing in the same place. Um, being a middle-aged straight white guy and being kind of betwixt and between baby boomer and Gen X, there's this quality of transition that I'm in um, that I kind of hold neither point. Neither point. So the context is this environment both ecological and sociological environment that I'm in that deems me a certain way and then I respond to that. And so my struggle with dukkha, which I I describe as unsatisfactory nature, I'm always continually feeling frustrated in this identification that is both an internalized of the external social construct, but it, it's something innate in me also. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the context in which I am practicing, partially, it's not all, is um, grief. Grief for uh, the planet, grief for um, California at the moment, grief for um, Puerto Rico and Texas and Las Vegas, uh, and on and on it goes. And um, grief, uh, personally, my husband died two years ago. Um, Grief for our sons and daughters who are born on this planet, in this world, as it is at the moment. Grief um, for uh, our government. So, um, yeah. um, witnessing the war of opposing views as if uh, yelling opinions or yelling positions louder and louder could actually bring people together rather than focusing on broadening the questioning, the awareness, the, the inquiry, um, and not, not having to have the position or the answer. I would say a, a certain form of blindness uh, in the sense that, um, so I'm speaking for uh, the industry I work in, which is technology. And um, I think that, you know, we think that Silicon Valley is evil, there are all these things, but there is really, when you're an insider, there is really. Um, a desire to actually to change the world and make the world a better place. So I think there is that um, blindness of or misunderstanding of where we are going, what is good. I think that there is a lot of striving to um, to do good things, even in the technology world, but a misunderstanding of of what that means. What does it mean to um, make the world a better world. Um, so that's. Uh, I was thinking about, um, yeah, the literal experience of sitting down and meditating in my home. Um, in Oakland, and the context in which I'm sitting is I'm sitting on stolen land. Uh, my whole even being there is a product of colonialism. I'm sitting listening to the sirens and the gunshots happening outside, and I'm knowing that they are intimately to do with me, and also I have the privilege to know that it's also nothing to do with me. Uh, and I would say at the moment I'm sitting a lot with the context of um, 
with of patriarchy and what that does to our bodies and our minds and yeah our whole way of being in the world well i was reflecting on the fact that simultaneous to their sort of movement towards urban farming more and more people are being forced off their farmers are forced off their lands and into cities or onto the edges of cities and are struggling to make it and more and more people are forced across borders um, to find a better life or a safe life for their families and yet are being rejected or or held away even even from places of plenty. Um, I'm thinking of homelessness in the, both in this culture in a broader sense of having lost for many a sense of home and belonging and then also on an international basis where there are so many refugees and so many people are being forced out of countries which they have called home. Thank you. I also want to... Um add um, a lot when I'm in experiencing the privilege of being in the earth um, I'm often thinking or I'm on hikes I often think about uh, ableism and um, the woman who was sharing bringing folks in chronic pain um, out into the earth Um, and I think about the ways, just the privilege of moving my body, the privilege of being able to sit and practice, um, and the ways so much is designed for able bodies um, in our cities, um, and also neuroatypical people. Woo, it's a lot. <laughs> yes. Yes, please. Thanks. I just... Uh, there's something that I that has been really ripe for me um, in the last few months, and it's this kind of um, sense of precarity and uh, just recognizing how um, how 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 much, especially in the media and then in our own experiences, the world is uh, feeling or can feel very dangerous, and this not knowing. Um, if we can trust the air we're breathing, the water we're drinking, the food we're eating. And so the way that that kind of breeds both uh, a sort of sense of personal disempowerment and, dis- and un- not an ability to trust one's own knowing and, um, and a kind of a collective anxiety, I think, too. So I've been very aware of that. Thank you. I just have to say that I'm noting how anthropocentric that list is. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, too. Um, and that there are probably there's so many lens in which we're coming in with our own con- how we're deciding what context we're practicing it. Thank you for saying that. Um, so maybe we just maybe we stand up for a moment just to breathe. And let um, the blood flow. And, oh, yes. Stretch it out. Find a sensation in your body, a place that needs some resourcing or. Wants to be honored. 
a lot of times with this kind of information, I know my shoulders get really tight um, and I stop breathing. Um, and we need breathing right now really deeply. And I'm thinking, uh, there's so much. Um, as we get deeper into this work, we just want to remember to practice. Um, just to continue to... I've, I've just been in a lot of spaces uh, where um, when we bring in the, this work, it can, we can forget to practice humility um, and hearing all of and hearing this information, and defense is often a response from fear of being complicit in these in systems of oppression. So just remember, a reminder continuously around humility in this, in taking in this information. Um, and something, um, you're welcome to sit or stand or keep stretching. Um, and another from Mia Coda Taylor with Fierce Allies. They talk about redistributing discomfort, um, that discomfort is often experienced by the most marginalized beings and by oppressed peoples. And when we have these signals in our nervous system um, where discomfort arises, it's because it's, it's allowing, it's getting redistributed so that we may all be in that suffering together and process that suffering together. Um, so just to remember that during this. So now we're going to get into um, looking at um, the coexistence and parallels of these contexts and the violences we've named that, are, that we're practicing within. Um, and bringing into this uh, the work of intersectionality and interbeing. So intersectionality is a word that is used a lot um, and often the citation and the root of how it came in is um, forgotten. Maybe we read that quote first um, from... From Dr. King? Yeah. Okay, why not? Does someone want to read this? I have it in all my presentations at work. <laughs> in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All humans are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until, what you, until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be you what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. I like the rest of it. You get it. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, yeah, so, wow, Dr. King. Uh, one of our mentors, Drew Dellinger, is writing a book called The Ecological King and interested in the cosmology of Dr. King's work. That was beyond his time. Um, or beyond what other people were singing. Um, so often the root of intersectionality gets evaded or forgotten or isn't known. 
Um, and many people have talked about intersectionality, um, but so there's a really key point in uh, the 90s, in 1994, um, when Anita Hill is on trial, uh, when Anita Hill, when there's, the trial's happening around Clarence Thomas joining the um, Supreme Court, the hearing, thank you. It wasn't a trial. Um, <laughs> and um, the hearings. Um, Anita Hill is actually a professor at the university I attended and had the real deep privilege of being around her as a teacher. Um, and Anita, um, Kimberly Crenshaw, one of Anita's attorneys, um, what was happening, she coined the term intersectionality in 1994. Um, and what was happening during those hearings is that the like 12 white men up there couldn't imagine that um, Anita was ex somehow experiencing something at the intersections of being both a woman and being black simultaneously, that she was being impacted by both racialized and gendered oppression um, simultaneously. And that what Clarence Thomas was saying, this is a high-tech lynching that is happening to me. Um, and other people, black people going, how could you prevent this black man from getting in this office um, who were upset with Anita for defending herself against someone who was practicing sexual assault against other women, um, was being targeted for not moving for pausing the racial evolution or the racial elevation of our of black people, of bringing us into higher spaces of office and um, wealth. Um, and so Kimberly Crenshaw coined this term to describe w the experience of what Anita Hill was feeling at this time. And this comes through, um, this word comes through in that way. Um, another way that intersectionality uh, we're hoping to come through with Lead to Life um, is the intersectional violences that are experienced through climate change. We're talking about environmental racism. Um, and there's a, our friend Heidi Quante has something called the Bureau of Linguistical Reality, where they're making new words to describe the sensations we're experiencing in the Anthropocene. Um, and she shared with us in a meeting that um, a black man came and to her, and he wanted a word for redefining climate on a personal level. Um, that he said, if a person's personal climate, feeling safe as a human in this specific time, history, and place, um, in his case, in his context as a black male in the United States, is not secure, it's impossible to have any energy left to consider climates beyond my immediate climate. This word is a yearning for respect for all living beings, beginning with other humans. Because until this basic respect happens, it will be impossible to grasp and realistically tackle any larger climates. It is a fundamental place the climate movement needs to start. The word hasn't come through yet, but um, <laughs> it's one we're meditating on what that word can be for that definition. So... Just to piggyback on all Bronte's talking about, all of these sufferings, and this is dukkha, this is all coexisting at the same time. And 
just from working in the environmental field for, for, for my whole career, um, there's been an unwillingness um, from the, my nonprofit organizations that I've worked for to talk about race and to talk about inequality and to even talk about capitalism, which we'll get into in a second. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I personally think that it's a fallacy that we have to choose one battle over the other. Um, there, was a, there was somebody at, um, Bronte and I just participated, um, and Bronte was actually one of the leaders of this Joanna Macy retreat um, intensive in June, and there was an older white man in the room who was frustrated, just very frustrated that we were talking about race. He was like, I came here to talk about the, the earth, and um, climate change is urgent. Why are we talking about these other things when the world is falling, like the apocalypse is coming? And I believe that the times are too urgent to not talk about race as well. Uh, that multiple sufferings coexist, and we better rise up and solve all of them simultaneously. Um, and that's what an intersectional approach is, especially environmental groups that have a history of just having tunnel vision and focusing on the trees while not realizing that perhaps in the creation of national parks, you're displacing indigenous peoples who used to live there. Um, so I think that especially as Buddhists who are practicing so sincerely and authentically, we really have a, a wonderful chance to have the widest peripheral vision and to really encompass through our practice of awareness all, all sufferings. And it doesn't mean that every single person in this room has to, like, tomorrow... Um, go, like, dedicate their life to, the, to Black Lives Matter. But it, it, I think it does mean that we all have to be allies and responsible allies um, and not just eliminate this choice. Um, uh, is there anything else, Bronte? Or shall we continue? Um, yeah. um, along in the same... Yeah, so here's another quote from MLK. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So as long as there's one of these issues, all of them are threatened to continue existing. And I'm thinking also of another example of um, preferential reverence. Um, I'm looking here at the, the, the Bodhi tree on the altar. Um, for those who don't know, this is um, in a relative of the original Bodhi tree um, that the Buddha was enlightened under. Um, and I had the amazing privilege of visiting the Bodhi tree that the Buddha sat under, or that Bodhi tree's grandson or daughter, grand tree, <laughs> genderless tree, um, in November. Um, and in India, you see the Bodhi trees uh, wrapped with robes oftentimes. And even the Hindus um, really revere this tree, along with the Buddhists. It's called the Pipal tree. And so you'll see in India just incredible deforestation, just like wild degradation we think that you know this is bad like wow like go to india and like they it's just soil erosion man-made deserts a lot of which were caused by colonialism first uh but the only trees that remain standing are the bodhi trees um because they're wrapped in robes and those ones are considered sacred and you know that's you know i, I i'm i I love, you know, that practice, and I think that we could benefit from that here. Um, 
ordaining trees. But I think that that's, there's actually a limit even to that practice because you're only revering one thing at the expense of all other things. There's a completely deforested hillside and one tree is wrapped in a robe. Um, so I wonder how we can, through our intersectional approaches to this work, uh, really learn to revere all things that we don't... And I'm also thinking about the, the fires that are happening to our north. And, some, and just some people are like really worried about the pets. Like, what about the dogs and all the, the abandoned pets that are just roaming free? And, and sometimes like we can even... Um, and I hear this like, discussion of anthropocentrism, and I think it can kind of also be on the other side where some people are like really care for the health and safety of animals more than the people that are suffering um, in those contexts. So we really need both. Okay. Um, here's just, does someone want to read this other quote from, from Dr. Vandana Shiva? Who, um, yeah, who's awesome. Does, does anybody not know who she is? Okay, Vandana Shiva is a really incredible um, physicist, but also um, a soil scientist and proponent of organic agriculture. She's trained hundreds of thousands of organic farmers in India um, on organics and is fighting genetically modified organisms um, and Monsanto in India. Separatism is at the root of disharmony with nature and violence against nature and people. Today, we need to overcome an eco-apartheid based on the illusion of separateness, the separation of humans from nature in our minds and lives. This eco-apartheid is an illusion because we are a part of nature and earth and not apart from it. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, we put intersectionality and interbeing. Um, interbeing is a concept that I learned from Thich Nhat Hanh, um, which speaks to the interconnected nature of reality that Dr. King is also speaking of. Um, and for me, interbeing speaks to our collective consciousness and our collective responsibility, and that um, Thich, Thich Nhat Hanh often talks about, like, he, he like often will like point to this a flower and like we'll study this flower and then we can't okay this flower is plastic but this this tree <laughs> this tree <laughs> and like how it also we can't see this tree without the water that it's drinking and without the sun that it's drinking and without the cloud that made the rain and so like just looking at one thing we're looking at everything so that's what interbeing is to me. And, and I th just think that it's a play on words, but it's also related to intersectionality um, because we can't talk about climate change without talking about like, the corrupt government that is um, paying for climate denial. Um, that's also talking about like, what, you know, denial as, as facts, you know, disempowering the people from actually speaking up. You know, this is like occupied land that we are just taking from and promoting, that's like, we're burning the trees, that is promoting climate change. You know, it's just like, there, it, it's, just, it's just all complex. I, I was wondering if you were going to link what you have put together, how these two dance. I understand the definitions of those two. Mm. I was wondering if you look at them as synonyms, or if you're going to give mm. relationships on why the world that's going on. Mm. Do you have anything, Bronte? 
Um, I'm excited to meditate on this, and I'm thinking about the ways um, interbeing for me uh, feels more personally. It may, it's it's a more alive word. Um, there's an aliveness that still feels rooted in intersectionality, but doesn't have as much of the kind of um, academia um, in it. And it and it I think it it calls us into a different kind of way of being committed to uh, the uh, supporting all sentient beings. Um, that's for me. Social issues are environmental issues. They cannot be separated. They are interbeing. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's some people in the room um, that are like, why are we talking about all this? I thought we came to an environmental chaplaincy workshop, not a social justice chaplaincy workshop. Um, and I think that's a question that we have to live with. Um, that for me, they can't be separated. So we, just in case that these weren't named on here, and, and I think they all are named, um, they actually all are named um, by you all. So thank you for being woke. Um, and we just choose to, chose to talk about, um, I think in Buddhism, at least as far as my practice, the limits of my practice, I've talk, we've talked about the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion on the personal level. Um, and even in the interpersonal level, and rarely do we, as a sangha, or in my sanghas, have we talked about it at a systemic level. How have these poisons been concretized and personalized in the systems that are our mirrors? Um, so we're, Bronte and I are choosing to, to really name um, and talk about these three. Um, and we're, we're hoping to harvest... Um, some definitions from the group um, before we talk about environmental justice and environmental racism. And we're almost moving into uh, reconciliation. We're almost done, but this is important for the really uncovering truth and the radical dharma, the truth of the, the suffering of our world. Does someone have a, have a definition for unchecked capitalism and inequality? <laughs> Oh, you don't know. Okay, cool. Um, isn't that a definition? Unchecked capitalism and inequity? Mm. Does someone have a definition for describing what unchecked capitalism? Yeah. Greed. <laughs> well, I think that Czech capitalism treats everything as this resource and that you grow capital indefinitely without really taking into, uh, into account the effects. One more and then we'll give... I think to me, it links back to what we're talking about, uh, intersectionality and interbeing. So, capitalism and inequity is really 
profound misunderstanding of uh, intersectionality and interbeing or interdependence. I think we're, we're it, just for, for time's sake, we should maybe one more and then we'll move on to what. Yeah, I yeah. just want to riff off of that and, and just kind of describe unchecked capitalism and inequity in terms of um, the lack of balance between, um, you know, capitalism or, or um, gaining things and generosity and just kind of that flow and circulation that you see in intersectionality and interbeing, where it's, it's an ecosystem. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> um, one, like, the, a standard definition of capitalism that I found says capitalism as an economic system and, and an ideology based on private ownership of the means of production to their operation for profit. Um, and then from that, I have some things from Charles Eisenstein, who wrote Sacred Economics and all the other incredible things. Um, an economic system rooted in the fundamental belief that scarcity will always be president, that present president. That capital, I'm I'm merging a larger um, text together. That capital can, inf can infinitely grow, and this design has contributed to alienation, competition, scarcity, destroyed community, and necessitated endless growth. And uh, in addition to this, someone wrote, toxic capitalism teaches us to view ourselves as machines and calculate our worth based on how much we produce, whether that's in money or work output. Really deep. So now, moving on to white supremacy, uh, and we'll, just, we'll, we'll, we'll define social ego. Uh, so maybe just if someone has a definition for white supremacy. Trump. Trump. I watched the movie The Big Short last night. And um, I don't know, maybe some of you have seen it. It's a couple years old. And um, I think that's the definition of white supremacy and unchecked capitalism. And, yeah, it was, it was, it was a movie about how, um, how the banks took over and the mortgage and the housing uh, market collapse in, the, in 2008. Mm -hmm. So we are still... still Affected by you know, yeah. and that that was yeah. totally. thank you. What comes up for me is uh, white supremacy's ultimate alienation. People feeling ultimately very alienated. Mm. Uh, white supremacy strikes me as both a culture and a system. And I feel like there's a tendency for us to focus on the system and to focus on the Ku Klux Klan and these very extreme versions of white supremacy. And I just want to name that white supremacy is a culture. It's here. It's in this room. It's in my body. It's in how I view the world, whether I like it or not. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to, to call that in. Two more. 
So I said Trump jokingly, but um, I don't know how many have read the article in The Atlantic by Tanahishi Coates on... You, you have to read this. So he makes the argument that Trump is the first white president because that's the title of the article. It's just out. And because he's defined his entire presidency in opposition to the uh, unbelievable uh, kind of um, situation that, that we actually had a black man as president. And so it's all, it's all about undoing the Obama legacy. It's all about... Um, eviscerating every kind of piece of evidence of that because it is so unthinkable mm. to a white supremacist that a black man could have led this country. And um, it, it, it's just an extraordinary piece of analysis that Tanahishi Coates has done. And, and the fact that we elected him implicates all of us, even those who didn't vote for him, putting the country in his control with all the implications of that that we're living through now. Um, is uh, raising up white supremacy against this reality that, of Obama. Thank, Thank you. you. Last one. And then. So I guess I just want to name that white supremacy is also generational. Um, I'm a great-great-grandchild of slave owners. Mm. It runs through this culture, unfortunately. Mm. And... Uh, I appreciate you bringing up the systemic aspects of it because whether or not we buy into it, um, it's really important to recognize. Thank you so much. I'm going to share a definition from Robin D'Angelo, who's a white woman and sociologist um, who has done a lot of deep work around articulating white supremacy and white fragility. Um, and she names, white supremacy is a term used to refer to a socio-political economic system of domination based on racial categories that benefit those defined and perceived as white. This system rests on the historical and current accumulation of structural power that privileges, centralizes, and elevates white people as a group. It reminds me a lot of hatred. A breath, maybe? <sighs> okay, and finally, our, our third is... is We're going to come um, back into social... Should we do it now? Yeah, why not? Um, so, uh, <laughs> Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams um, brings us into um, social ego. Um, and I'll just read this. Um, just as the ego mind cannot be used, this is an incredible article also, and I, if you all, I'll share it with you all. Just as the ego mind cannot be used to work its way out of its own construct, the mind of whiteness cannot be used to see through the veil of its own construct. As Buddhists, we are gifted with precisely the tools and methodologies needed for the project of deconstructing, but that lens of awareness must be placed outside of the construct of whiteness. As a direct result of privilege, white practitioners and teachers have mistakenly entitled themselves to place the lens of awareness inside of whiteness, hence they are unable to see its machinations. Only when we choose to live the Dharma in a radical way, with a motivation toward complete liberation, can our work begin. Um, and this section of the article is entitled, The Social Ego. 
So moving on to uh, colonialism, just as a third context that reconciliation will, will be necessary within. Does someone have a definition for colonialism? Yay, Beth. <laughs> Whew, colonialism. Um, well, I suppose the expansion of Western Europe through the colonization of lands belonging to other people, the theft of those lands, the genocide of the people living on those lands, the enslavement of those people on those lands to the benefit of the wealth of those living in Europe and and then the settlers that, that came to those lands. So. I think that I'm trying to think if there's something I've missed. I suppose fundamentally at its heart it's it's this concept of arriving, stealing and and staying and kind of slowly eliminating um, what was there beforehand. I was just recently uh, reading a, a piece of a journal by Captain Dawes, who was an early um, colonist of the American West who founded the Dawes Act, which actually broke, put, privatized the West um, and broke it up into kind of marketable tracts, which was a huge, um, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was hu- it was a huge marker in history in terms of um, colonial expansion and uh, capitalism in the West, and his observations of the people, the indigenous peoples who are living there, which I think this actually matches quite well with the with your correlation with delusion. And um, his description of these people was that they did not have any; they didn't seem to have any conflict. They were very harmonious. No one was hungry. No one was thirsty. Everyone was cared for, and because of that, they were just never going to progress. And, um, and so these people, I mean, it's quite an, it's an incredible quotation. It was, I had to pause and actually, you know, um, just really, I was so struck by it. But, um, but again, this, this idea that, that having that level of harmony is actually a detriment because it impedes the, um, kind of grind of, of a capitalism that, that requires, that rests on inequality, you know. Um, so, yeah. We have to move on because there's so much more coming. But thank you. Um, maybe just Bronte. Yep. I'm going to read a brief excerpt from Franz Fanon, whose work, um, a black man who did a lot of work around um, decolonization and the colonized Uh, the effects of colonialism on um, psychology and place. Um, And he writes, Colonized peoples are denied the opportunity to know themselves. Instead, the colonizer claims to know the colonized, but this knowledge betrays a determination to objectify, to confine, to imprison, to harden. The rich history and institutions of the indigenous population are physically and symbolically destroyed, And in their place, the colonizer produces a people who deserve only to be ruled. The colonizer constructs colonized peoples as lazy and unproductive. 
thereby justifying low wages or coercive systems of labor. He also constructs them as stupid, thereby justifying the imposition of the colonial powers, institutions, and practices. Finally, he constructs them as savage and dangerous, thereby justifying military conquests and coercive forms of social control. The result is a people in whose soul an inferiority complex has been created by the death and burial of its local cultural originality. That was written in 1967 by Fanon. So, we, it's, thank you. And just for me, again, I forget so often that I'm on colonized land. So for me, that's why it's delusion. That it's just like, la la la, this is my home, without the also recognizing that it, my, the land that we're walking on, it had centuries of occupation by the original tenders. And so for me also, environmental, we can't talk about the environment without talking about the erasure and dispossession of the original tenders. Okay, we finally made it. <laughs> Reconciliation. Okay, what is it about? Um, this is a really deep question for me. Um, so we just, we'd like to hear what comes up for you. Just If we could just yell out uh, what comes up for you around what, is, what does reconciliation mean? Yes, yes, great. Thank you. Truth-telling as a first step to reconciliation. Waking up to what harm one has inflicted or been part of. Mm. Waking up to what harm one has inflicted or been a part of. Humility. Humility. Asking forgiveness. Asking forgiveness. Giving forgiveness. Giving forgiveness. Mm. What can we do now to make it better? What can we do now to make it better? Acknowledge the harm. Never forget. Never forget. Recognizing, we are all human. Recognizing we are all human. Focusing on a wider context than just the harm. Coming back together, recovering from separation. I'm an, Listening to the community. Letting go of denial. Letting go of denial. This is deep. So good. Ding. Recovering love. Recovering the strengths that exist as well as the brokenness. Recovering trust. Empathy. Acknowledging that we are all oppressed. Wow. Okay, I think we're ready for a Buddhist environmental chapel. Let's see. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, thank you, Beth, for Beth came in with the root um, of the word, which literally means to bring. This word means to bring back together, which implies that there were, that harmony has existed. Um, so great, a lot of these threads came through with what you all shared about what reconciliation requires. So we have 
truth-telling, acknowledgement of multiple truths coexisting, all the ways oppression is interrelated, um, and the ways it affects how we move through the world. Um, we had a, Kyle and I were on a panel at the Slow Food Nations U.S. conference in July in Colorado um, on a panel called Food Heals, Creative Responses to Trauma about our work. And uh, an indigenous man from, do you remember what communities? From the East Bay. I uh, came up to Kyle after and said, you can't have reconciliation without relationship. Um, because we have been talking about what is reconciliation. Um, so relationship is something that is required. With, uh, with the context that um, there was no relationship between white people and his community. And so there's nothing to reconcile if there's no relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, patience is required um, with reconciliation that Something I learned from Mia Coda Taylor from Fierce Allies is that we have to practice allyship as a way, not a destination. There is never going to be a day where you are the best ally of all time um, and that you get it. De- decomposing white supremacy is a daily death um, and is, is something in myself and in my own body that I go through of decomposing the ways I am complicit in white supremacy. And I'm black. Um, <laughs> so it's in all of us when we're here. It, it's so deep. It's so deep how deep it is in us. So we have to be slow. Um, and then trust. So we are asking how do we cultivate um, ecosystems of trust that allow for reconciliation to be possible um, for that work of also giving forgiveness to, to be something we are willing to do because we um, know it will be honored. Um, and and respect it. Just mm-hmm. a couple more things on trust. Um, a mentor of ours, Dakila Chungyalpa, who um, started the Sacred Earth program um, for WWF International, and also she is the environmental advisor to His Holiness the Karmapa. And she, she tells us that trust is our most valuable tool in environmental work. Because um, environmental work is, at, at least at the policy level, is people work. And so we need those trusts, trusting relationships. And right now, there's a lot of distrust between indigenous communities, environmental groups, um, black communities. So all the stakeholders in the environment, there's just like severe lack of distrust. So that's why this reconciliatory process is so important. Um, I forgot the second part. (laughs) And I I, I think in that, too, when we were talking earlier about practicing being able to listen to the land a lot of this that we're talking about in the social what does it mean to practice these same uh connections of reconciliation with the earth um how do how are we able to listen when the earth still is so loving to us and should not trust us at all Mm. um does someone want to read this quote from adia shanti who is uh was trained in the zen tradition I love me some Adyashanti. The fear of destroying the planet, that's very true. And if we are addressing the truth from a standpoint of fear, then fear has won the day. The interesting thing about fear is when you really go through fear, instead of trying to manage fear, the other face of fear is love. There's not actually different 
they're not actually different things, just heads and tails on the same coin. When we actually start to confront and meet fear itself, that's when we start to come into love. Love always arises from that sense of unity of what we really actually are. So now... Uh We want to move into um, talking with each other. Um, we can move on to the next one. I think we went over those pretty thoroughly. Um, so we want to talk about um, the different levels of reconciliation that are required for any reconciliation. <laughs> um, and so, you know, first, there, you know, I think many of you mentioned the internal reconciliation process that's required, that we can't ask others to change what we have not unearthed and healed within ourselves. Um, and once that process is <laughs> happening and dynamic, um, and we're living in the question of that internal reconciliation process and dealing with our own shame and our own guilt and our own fragility, um, then it requires a social and interpersonal reconciliation process um, where we can practice an embodiment, um, that healing within our communities with each other. Um, and only then can we truly demonstrate an alternative to the systems that we are trying to transform and reconcile entire systems of oppression um, and environmental injustice. So um, this is where we get to talk with each other. Um, maybe just for uh, a few minutes, um, if we can just form little groups of three or four. Um, and just, we, this is not comprehensive. We could really spend all day talking about this, but the, the prompt is... What, can, what Buddhist practices and concepts and rituals can we call upon um, at each of these levels? Um, and maybe, since we don't have much time left, uh, we can just uh, pick one as a group to talk about um, which, practices, which Buddhist practices and rituals can we call upon uh, to initiate these reconciliatory process. So, yeah, so should we, we should stop. Like, we have a couple more content pieces. We should. Yeah, I think Okay, it's enough. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, I couldn't tell by. So, do you want us to initiate a discussion or to open? Or is that what you said by five minutes? Of, I mean, like five minutes of this and then five minutes apart. Oh, bringing it back, what we yeah. learned. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. And also, there's this bathroom. Yeah. 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 Remind me. We'll freeze it. Yeah, we'll just we'll just name it. I'll name that what's left to talk about. What we what what requires more attention that we're not just skipping it. But this is your homework. Great, great. She was so deep. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that part when people were saying what reconciliation requires? People know. We were 
artists are doing their work. Yeah, they're doing they're, it. And the people who are at the scene, they're, they're, you know, even if they're not speaking, I see yeah. Just a couple more minutes. I wish we had time to talk about this all day, but we gotta bring it back, so maybe if someone hasn't spoken yet, give them the opportunity to speak. I'm sorry, I know it's so short. I know, they're wrapping us up, they're kicking us out. It's, it's, this is our homework. We can revisit this at four. <laughs> yes, deep combo. Okay. So now let's share with each other, just maybe we'd love to hear just some of the, the most alive examples that we, we just heard. So we, all of us would benefit from hearing what you talked about. Just, just a, couple, a couple burning things that are just like, oh my gosh, this is going to change my life. Other side. Yep, great. Anybody? Uh, I'm curious about, um, given that we have like a shared kind of a practice background, like um, within this like you know kind of vast uh, tragedy and, and injustice, and um, like what about the possibility of having moments of like deep um, kind of acceptance or freedom even? Um, without having and, and all the conditions are still as they are, you know, and then, you know, having kind of being able to, like, stay connected to that, that possibility, that reality as a way of nourishing, providing context, um, like people have mentioned, for, for the long journey that we're on here. And, and then I think this, and this is really delicate, and it's been a long question of, like, is it possible for people who don't have the benefit of this background of practice to how can you like provide an invitation to um, some more freedom uh, as we're simultaneously trying to deconstruct the systems that lead to the oppression and I, I struggle with this as a white man who's you know has many years of meditation experience teaching whatever like how can I like and what what for me seems to be the most valuable tool like how is it possible to 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 sort of um, Help others benefit from that um, as as a as a way of sustaining uh, this journey through uh, and because like you know samsara will always be samsara. Mm -hmm. How can we stay nourished uh, mm -hmm. as we?
Go yes, through. thank you so much. Thank I'm you. hearing the need for um, kind of that reflexive re reflexivity, and like first acknowledging the the inequity um, within the room, within the sangha, and then also how does that relate to the external work? Um, and also, yeah, I love the invitation for inner that freedom, finding freedom within all of this. Thank you. So it seems to me that I cannot see systemic reconciliation possible without interpersonal recon reconciliation. Um, like, I mean, from any context you take it, but if you're taking it with the environment and the the companies that are like polluting the environment, like you cannot see that there would be a societal reconciliation if the practices day to day, you know, are harming people just on the same floor of your office. Uh, so it has to be interpersonal. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's kind of this la 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 utopic. I mean, that's really what you see in all those like CSR missions and companies. Mm. You know, we want to do all of those things. And, and then you look at what's being done. Thank you. Um. Mm. Any other burning things? This is a rhetorical question because I'm not enough of a Buddhist scholar to have any idea. But when I looked at the three poisons and as they were structured top to bottom, I couldn't help but think about dependent origination or interdependent origination and the chain of that and the, the philosophy of that. So I would just like to sit in the question of how do those interrelate and how can we use that Buddhist philosophy to explore these poisons? Yes, codependent arising. So important. Mm -hmm. Last one. This is short. Our group talked about interpersonal reconciliation, and a couple of things came up, but I just wanted to highlight um, a ritual that happens in, I'm sure you're quite familiar with, in the Zen Center. The, I believe it's the full moon ceremony, mm -hmm. where the entire Sangha comes together to name and let go of anything that may have happened in the prior lunar month. Mm. Thank you. Wow. So we're out of time, um, and we had a whole third area to go into, but maybe we'll just name it really quickly, and it can be our homework. Um, and I, and I, and I'm, it's actually perfect because we're about to go forth, aren't we? Um, and then part of that is responsibility. Um, responsibility to the truths that we've unearthed together as a Sangha, and responsibility um, after our reconciliatory process begins to, to embody, embody that truth and awareness and quest, living the question as we go forth. Um, go for it. And uh, something we were going to get into was how to uh, practice... Um, the ways often that we practice, how uh, we practice compassion without wisdom, or we practice wisdom without compassion, and the ways that though the app, when they're not coupled, can be really harmful. And we're going to share some examples of that. Um, but just that to move forward into radical responsibility, wisdom and compassion have to um, 
be coupled with one another. And especially with environmental justice issues, we can often um, have compassion um, for saving the planet without the wisdom of ways that that could be causing harm to other people. And, and even how, like, when you pigeonhole and, and look at one species and maybe, like, solve that, you might be harming other species in an entire ecosystem and web of relationships by just looking at, like, really loving the one animal without the wisdom of the whole. Mm-hmm. And um, this, is ha- this has come up for me with, uh, I had a real desire to eradicate invasive species, and um, just, like, I'm like, I want everything that's invasive to get out of here. Um, and I read an incredible book called Beyond the War on Invasive Species um, that really, you know, oh, this invasive thing that I want to eradicate might have become, inha- might become a habitat for another being, or ha- the ecosystem has adapted and become more resilient because of its presence, um, or it's food for another being now, and how to, do, how to have a holistic permaculture approach to ecosystem restoration. So now my, wis- my compassion has been coupled with wisdom to approach that work in a different way. And the last, oh, well, there, was one, there was one just more concept that I really would love to, to give, which is um, just a th- there can be three layers of responsible action and, and of our responsibility. And I think especially for Buddhists, and I, maybe we'll talk about this in a second with going forth, but the first with responsibility is intention. And I think the Eightfold Path speaks a lot and gives us a lot of tools, like how grateful I am for Buddhist practice that I don't have to like, make up an entire way of life to, to be a good person. Like how lucky I am to have found this practice that has been tested for hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, and there's very tested and um, reflexive tools and practices that we can call upon even now in a very strange and complex world. And so at the internal, at the personal level, there's the Eightfold Path that can help me with my intention, um, right service, right thought, right speech. And then in the interpersonal, we have um, the five precepts and sila and ethics and um, different things that we can do that are automatically non-harming, like not killing, not slandering, um, not stealing. These are, these are non-harming principles that have direct environmental repercussions. So, and then the, at the systemic level, this was more of a rhetorical question that we hope to discuss, but maybe it can be our homework, is, um, is, it, is, it, our respons- is it our responsibility as Buddhist eco-chaplains to take part in proactive movements of resistance in defense of the earth? And if so, how do we hold space as eco-chaplains on the street when we're advocating for climate policy, um, climate justice, um, deforestation, um, Black Lives Matter, all of these things? Um, We wanted to have community reflections, but... Oh, sorry. We wanted to have community reflections, but there's not time, so... Maybe at the end of the whole... And um, these are some of the resources that we, we have so many that we love to give. Um, but Kirsten's also going to be, sent, we're going to send this PowerPoint. Um, and yeah, thank you all so, so much. We're so grateful. Um, Thank you. Can, could we repeat some, 
one more thing from Mia Coda Taylor has changed my life. Can we repeat this very small mantra they say after any session? Any positivity generated? Any positivity generated? We give away to all of life. We give away to all of life. For the sake of freedom. For the sake of freedom. Thank you.